well, um, today we're going to be um, bringing two things to a close. One, we'll be bringing a close um, the spring semester of Sunday school. So this will be the last um, uh, adult Sunday school meeting for the spring. Next Sunday, we'll start uh, the family summer school and we'll have Lucas Dorado, campus minister from the University of Connecticut, coming to speak with us in Sunday school. So we have that to look forward to. The second thing we're bringing to a close uh, today uh, in our study of Acts, we'll be bringing to a close Paul's second missionary journey. So, uh, and this is something that Luke has been um, describing for the past couple of chapters, since Acts chapter 16, when we saw Paul um, set out uh, to revisit those churches that he established in Asia Minor during his first missionary journey. Um, and then uh, that twice used phrase in Acts 16, where the Spirit blocked him or the Spirit prevented him from going uh, um, further into Asia or going north into Bithynia, um, but instead um, he receives a vision of this Macedonian man saying, come on over and help us. Um, and so he departs uh, Asia Minor, heads across into Macedonia and starts a, um, a ministry campaign on the Greek mainland. Last week, we saw him uh, depart from Silas and Timothy, his two main companions, and move into uh, Greece. They stay behind in Macedonia for a further time. And he goes and he preaches in Athens. And um, most of our conversation last week focused on Paul's ministry uh, in Athens as he um, had an opportunity both to witness in the marketplace, but then to speak publicly in the place of, of formal debate, the Areopagus. Um, and we talked a lot about last week how he uh, specifically tailored his message to address the situation of, of Athens, this learned place, um, a place of wealth and privilege, um, but also a place of enslavement, and where they're fascinated by um, the new and um, fascinated by having a good argument and debate, but not necessarily interested in discovering the truth. And we saw how he started by using one of the many idols set up in Athens as an opportunity to make his case for the one true God. Um, so today, uh, we'll turn to Acts chapter 18, um, which will conclude Paul's ministry in Greece and then see him return back to Antioch and then possibly even to um, Jerusalem, giving a report on his activities there. And then we'll also see some highlights or foreshadowing of, of what's going to come in his next missionary journey with this little tale at the end of the chapter uh, um, that focuses on Ephesus. So uh, I'll read for us and then I'll pray. So hear now the word of God from Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. 
And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrei, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard them, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's 
go to him and ask him to open it in our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your continued work in your church, even as we see that work operating in this book of Acts, the encouragement that you give directly to Paul and a vision, but then also through the ministry of brothers and sisters to one another, giving uh, great encouragement, enabling your gospel to go forth faithfully and boldly. We thank you for the continued testimony of your church and the work of your spirit, that you continue to call your people to yourself. Teach us to be faithful. Teach us to work diligently, uh, fervently, with all eagerness to see your gospel go forth, your good news for the nations, that uh, those who you've called will be brought near and will come into fellowship with the community of believers, and that we all will be part of one body with the head of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Teach us by Christ, by your spirit, this morning we pray. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so after leaving Athens, uh, Luke talked about Paul heading to Corinth. Um, there are a number of, of interesting or different things that take place in Corinth that we haven't seen in other of Paul's missionary stops. So, uh, just sort of thinking about what we've read so far about Paul's first two missionary journeys, what's different about his um, time in Corinth? Or what strikes you as different or new or unusual? Yeah, Ron. Yeah, so he is, uh, so two things there, that it, this is a longer stay, and, and Luke will go on to tell us he's there for over a year and a half. So it's not just, you know, um, you know the Athens trip seems to be a little abbreviated <laughs> or shorter. Uh, Where's this? You're absolutely right. He's, he's staying um, for a longer period of time. And the other thing we see him doing here that you mentioned, Ronnie, is he's practicing a trade. Um, that he takes up with Priscilla and Aquila, and he, he, he makes tents as, you know, they're fellow believers, they're of the same trade, so it's just kind of natural that he moves in with them and sets up shop with them, and, and he works alongside doing the normal things that we see him doing, like he's, uh, he's stayed with them and worked, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. But this is the first time we've seen him, um, as you say, kind of settle down and, and work at a worldly calling um, and not just uh, the calling to proclaim the gospel. Jay, you had your hand up.
yeah, that he kind of gets there and he's doing the same things. Like he's, he going, he's going to the synagogue. He's, he's, he's reasoning with both Jews and Greeks, making the case for, um, you know, from the scriptures for, for how the, you know, the Christ is going to come and he's going to suffer and die. And then that subsequent claim that Jesus is the Christ. So kind of, we've seen kind of two components of his argument. One, laying out the Old Testament case for a different kind of Christ and then establishing that Jesus is that prophesied person in the Old Testament. Um, but he's, he's not just doing it as a matter of debate. As you say, he's, he's dwelling among them. Um, he's, uh, the tent maker is setting up tent. <laughs> no, actually, he's moving in with Priscilla and Aquila. But, um, but, but yeah, he's, he's setting a little, uh, um, you know, a little more presence there, um, which, you know, to think about as we've been going through 1 Corinthians, how he can talk to them with a degree of, of directness and boldness um, that, like, you know, like, you know, Corinthians is the letter, like, you know, that always gets people, like, Paul said that, <laughs> Well, he said it to people who he has, you know, who he has relationship with. Um, you know, it, he's saying it to people he, he knows, and he can be direct with them, and he can call them out um, and call them to account for things that they're doing and saying in Corinth because he spent a long time there. I mean, there are there are groups and organizations like Jews for Jesus, so people who are um, culturally Jewish but religiously Christian that make it a point to um, to minister to other Jewish believers. Um, but the other thing I would say, and I think this it's a theme in this this chapter, I think, is again we're in this transition period um, where. Um, you know, the gospel is going forth to the Jews, and, you know, we're coming to that, and we saw this earlier in the book, you know, like this parting of the ways, like where they're, you know, where at first uh, Christianity or the Christian community of believers was existed within Judaism, and now we're seeing them increasingly become separate uh, organizations, um, and it, and that's part of when he goes in front of Gallio, you know, I is this a new religious movement, or is this an internal matter of the Jews? And that's going to be a really important part of how the Romans treat Christians, because if they consider Christians to be just kind of internal Jewish sect, then all the existing protections in place in regard to Jews as far as their um, their religious worship will continue, like, you know, it's the umbrella of protection continues to cover them. If there's something new, then that, then they're treated as a new religious sect, and that, you know, opens them to a whole different set 
of, of the Roman law <laughs> and penal code. In particular, they wouldn't be exempted from um, not worshiping the emperor in the same way that Jews are exempted from worshiping the emperor as a ancient faith. Um, so like, you know, when they go before Gallio, like it's still uh, a confused enough question um, of who Christians are and what their relationship to Judaism that, you know, Gallio, ah, this is y'all's internal matter. Y'all want to bicker over words and your own law and names, like who's the Christ? Ah, y'all do that. This is not, <laughs> this is not my jurisdiction. Um, whereas, you know, a as they become identified as a new sect, then, you know, then Rome pays attention to them in a very different kind of way. Um, and that, um, Yeah, but yeah, and it's the he, and he's going to them as the people of God and you know the covenant people of God and God has you know made it clear that that covenant isn't just for them; it's through them to be a blessing to the entire world. And so, as he says in Romans, you know, I go to the Jew first and then to the Greek. You know, they're both recipients of the covenant promise, but for. Um, you know, for gospel purposes, you know, the message is, is delivered to them first. And, uh, you know, again, we see it with Priscilla and Aquila, like um, they're, they're labeled Jews, um, but clearly they're believers. Like we don't see any need for them to be converted. He goes, he stays with them. We see them, um, you know, travel with him. When he leaves town, they go with him uh, to Ephesus. Um, and then the church in Ephesus, uh, we're told later, is meeting in their house. Um, and we see how they're going to, um, you know, they take Apollos aside at the end of the chapter. So there is this, like, cultural identity as Jews and then the religious identification um, of a, a believer in Jesus Christ. And you can be both culturally Jewish and a believer in Jesus. Yeah, Ronnie. About, about who? I'm sorry. Claudius. Oh, Claudius. Nero's acronym. Tiberius. Um, there's Claudius. Uh, uh, it's been too long since I've been... So he's basically emperor, he, he became emperor in A.D. 40. Um, 
Um, he dies later, so, I mean, right. So, and so, yeah, so the question to get, I think that's a question. Um, so why are Jews getting expelled from Rome? Maybe, so, and we have, so Claudius is emperor and he's expelling the Jews for Rome. And um, some of the evidence suggests he might be expelling Jews for Rome, not because of Jews, because of Christians. Um, because Christians have come in, uh, as Jay said, they're going to Jews first. There are about 50,000 Jews in Rome at the time. Um, and, and they're actively proselytizing. They're actively trying to recruit people to their faith. Um, and they're too um, uh, Suetonius, uh, um, uh, has a remark. I wrote it down. Hold on, where did I put it? Uh, Suetonius said this. Um, Rome the city. So, um, so the Jews constantly made uh, disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. You know, is that a misspelling or mispronunciation of Christ? So he, the Emperor Claudius, expelled them from Rome. So Suetonius said, you know, the Jews were creating disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. Now, is Crestus somebody else? Is Crestus Jesus? That's all he says, so we don't really know. Um, the other, uh, Cassius Dio, said, As for the Jews, who had again increased so greatly that by reason of their multitude it would have been hard without raising a tumult to bar them from the city, he, Claudius, did not drive them out, but ordered them while continuing their traditional mode of life not to hold meetings. Um, so, and again, there's debate over there, if there was two acts of Claudius, first he barred them, Cassius Dio is actually the first statement. So did he first bar them from meeting and then expelled them when, when they were still creating, you know, a tumult? Um, but he, he's driving them out um, for political reasons and for creating a disturbance. Um, and Priscilla and Aquila are refugees of that, but we know they're already Christian, um, or it seems like they're already Christian by the time Paul encounters them. So there seems to be a Christian presence in Rome at this time. Um, all right, so we see Paul spending more time. We see him um, doing this tent-making ministry. What else is distinct about his ministry in Corinth? can no longer see the clock on the wall, so <laughs> um, uh, I need new glasses. Uh, but other things that, that are different? Jay, you look eager. Yeah, and notice the kind of the change at first. Like, you know, um, Silas and Timothy show up, um, and Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So their arrival seems to indicate kind of a change in um, the 
amount, degree, type, intensity of Paul's ministry. And we know from, um, from other epistles that they probably brought a gift with them to help sustain Paul and his ministry. Um, in 2 Corinthians um, uh, chapter 11, verse 9, And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. So, like, you know, I, I worked at my tent-making ministry. Um, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So these brothers from Macedonia, presumably Silas and Timothy, come, have come bringing a gift. Um, in the le letter to the Philippians, um, chapter 4, verse 15, And you, you Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Um, so, you know, they've come and they've brought a gift to sustain Paul so he doesn't necessarily have to work as a tent maker anymore, which allows him to devote more time to the ministry, which leads to increased opposition and this added word, you know, they don't just oppose him, they revile him. Um, and in response to that, yeah, he shakes out his, his garments, he does this action, like, you know, um, you know, as we saw earlier in the book, like these kind of symbolic actions, the guilt isn't on my head, the guilt's on your head, I'm not weaving willingly, you're casting me out, I'm innocent of all charges. But in this case, he stays. Um, and, but what's different, we're told, is now he's, he, you know, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And this isn't an absolute declaration like he's done with Jews, absolutely. He's, he's going to focus the rest of his ministry in Corinth on the Gentile community because we see, you know, when he leaves, the first place we see him going to in, his, in Ephesus is back to a synagogue. So it's not an absolute declaration of, you know, I'm, I'm done dealing with Jews. It's a temporal place, just like we see, you know, you shake the dust off your feet, um, you know, as a sign uh, against the community that's expelled you. So he's laying the responsibility on him being um, driven from the synagogue on their heads. But then, you're at, yeah, you're absolutely right. He, he then stays <laughs> for a year and a half <laughs> after he does this symbolic act, um, which is different. Usually you do the symbolic act and then you move on to the next town. He does the symbolic act and he and, and takes up residence next door. <laughs> um, he left there and went to the home of a man named Titius Eustace, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So, <laughs> um, yeah, he's, you know, called this blood curse upon them and then goes next door, you know, hi, neighbor, um, which you can imagine is going to, you know, continue to feed tensions in the city. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that and and you know, and with the two converts named, um, you know, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, the double Roman name indicates he's probably a Roman citizen of some provenance. Um, and then Crispus, the ruler of synagogue, um, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. So he's he's gathered some pretty um, important converts both among the Jews and Gentiles in the city. 
Yeah, and, and whatever the, the strategy is, um, it doesn't, you know, the intention, even though he's saying, I'm going to go to the Gentiles, um, there's still this tension there. Like, that doesn't solve the tension with the Jews, as we see with them, like, you know, um, gathering together, <laughs> um, you know, marshalling their forces to take him before the Roman civil authorities. Like, yeah, his presence there, um, even if he's not coming to the synagogue in the same way he's been coming to them, his presence across the street is, is a, enough of a, you know, statement, um, in, in, in their face kind of statement, that they, you know, take, try to take this further measure by bringing him to the state. And maybe they can do that because he has taken, like, all right, so he's not in the synagogue anymore. They're gathering over in this house across the street. Um, so they're, they're new. Like, it's not us. Like, this is, it's not a Jewish community. It's a new sect. And therefore, they're in violation of the Roman law. And so the Jews seem to be using his, his setting up camp strategically to accuse him. Um, so there's a little, yeah, maybe a little strategy on both sides. Um, why the vision? Um, you know, in, in the middle of this, you know, you know, description of what's going on in Corinth, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Like, that's different. Uh, we've seen Paul get visions telling them to go places. Um, this is the first one we've seen to direct him to, you know, and it doesn't even say stay. It's, it's more the kind of, like, the words to Joshua, like, <laughs> do not be afraid. Um, you know, I will go with you. I will strengthen you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so why, why this vision, do you think? Yeah, Cynthia. <laughs> well, I mean, we have seen in prior, I'd say like, you know, maybe it's because we've seen this track record before of him, you know, creating opposition and, and particularly opposition among Jews that pursue him. Like, you know, we saw in Asia Minor, they actually pursue him to another town and get him stoned. Um, we see opposition to him that, that get him um, driven from cities. Um, and then you know, so it could be that based on that, so, you know, he's being opposed and reviled to the, the extent, you know, he shakes out his garments and says, your blood be on your own head. Like, you know, um, that is like a pretty divisive break that could subsequently escalate in some kind of violent action. Um, and we've seen that kind of and some of his previous encounters with Jews in the cities he's visited before. So maybe Paul, you know, 
maybe based on what's happened before, like you go through the pattern enough, like you, you know what's, what's happening next. Um, we had a, a football play at Vanderbilt where um, the wide receiver would peel off and blindside block the safety. And, and we do it in practice and our, our poor scout team safety um, he got knocked out twice, <laughs> like with all these concussion things. I'm like, oh, wonder what his brain's like these days. But anyway, um, but you'd see it on film. Like after uh, it's happened a couple of times, anytime that that safety's running, like he's running this way, but he's looking this way, <laughs> like he's learned. <laughs> you know, after he's got knocked out a couple of times, like you know, he's no longer worried about pursuing, <laughs> like. You know, there's a little kind of like, yeah, I've, I, you know, I've seen this play before. <laughs> I know it comes, and it, it's not good for me. Um, uh, so, you know, so is it like, you know, the, the kind of pattern that's happened before that usually leads him to be driven out of the city? Um, and I like, you know, you know, maybe part of the explanation is with what immediately follows the vision, this intentionality of staying a year and a half. Like, like he's given a vision that doesn't tell him to stay, but tells him, don't be afraid. Um, I'm with you. And it tells him, I have many in the city who are my people. And, you know, whereas he might move on um, to avoid the escalation of tensions. In this case, he stays for a long time. Um, with this assurance from God that I'm going to be okay. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, that, and we see, like, when Paul is brought before the Roman authorities, as you say, like, you know, the Roman authorities don't support the charges against him. And he doesn't even, I, I mean, in the account of the little trial, like, I love, when Paul was about to open his mouth, like, he doesn't even have to mount a defense. Like, you know, it's like he's heard what the Jews have accused him of, and he's like, let's just stop this right here. <laughs> this is your debate. Um, and I, again, I love the, the description. You know, if it was a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, I'd listen. <laughs> but since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself. 
Like, yeah, that um, he's not interested um, in this internal Jewish matter. Um, Gallio is actually, um, uh, I, I didn't realize this until you know, doing some of my um, preparation. He's actually pretty famous, or he has a famous family. Um, his father was the order Seneca the Elder. Um, his younger brother is the Stoic philosopher Seneca the Younger. Um, so it, it, we actually know quite a bit about Gallio. Um, and one of the things we know about him is he also, we know from some of the things written about him, he's a little bit of an anti-Semite. So he already um, doesn't think a lot of the Jews anyway. Um, and so, um, as you say, like, if that's his reputation, like, if he has that known reputation, then, yeah, that, this is going to be, you know, a place where Paul can preach the gospel boldly uh, for a long time, even in the midst of opposition and revulsion against him. And, but, you know, the way Luke narrates it, we find that out after the fact. Like, he's assured by God before he gets assurance from the Roman state that he can preach in this. Like, it's God's giving him assurance. And I, I love this, that even the Apostle Paul needs a word of encouragement. Even the Apostle Paul needs, you know, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Like, you know, we think Paul as this, you know, guy who speaks boldly, who speaks his mind, who doesn't hold back. And yet even he needs the encouragement, don't be afraid. Speak boldly. Don't be silent. Yeah, Jay. Yeah, and I love that the end part, like, you know, for I have many people in this city who are my people, like, you know, there are many in the city who are my people who need you here, um, who need, and, and uh, again, the way it's expressed, it's like, you know, again, God can, uh, God knows the rest of the story, like, so he knows that there are people who aren't Christian yet, but he's called, um, and that they need Paul here to stay in order to receive the gospel from Paul. Like, you know, like, you know, again, what encouragement, like, stay. Like, you know, the results are mine. You know, you preach boldly, and I'll worry about who responds and who opposes, um, who receives it with gladness, and who receives it with revulsion. Um, but it's God has kind of predetermined the ends here, not kind of. God has predetermined the ends here that, again, gives Paul the confidence uh, this, and this encouragement that he can minister in this place, knowing that, yes, there's going to be opposition, but it's not going to touch your body uh, in this case. Um, there's going to be... Um, you know, difficulties ahead for you, but there are many people in the city who are mine. Becky, you had your hand.
yeah, it, it puts us in a position like, to, you know, that we're like Paul because, yeah, we're afraid. Um, and yet, and, and it, when we hold the apostles up as, you know, like this, you know, superheroes, um, you know, like, you know, well, of course Superman can rush into that fire because, like, you know, he's bulletproof or, or fireproof or, um, you know, he can go do that. Um, because, well, he's Superman. Like, yeah, Paul can go into Corinth, and Paul can do that, because he's Paul. Um, but when, you know, with, you know, this kind of text emphasizes Paul's human. Um, Paul needs encouragement. Paul needs the, the reminder, do not be afraid. Um, Paul needs the reminder that, you know, God is with him and sustains him in his ministry, just as God is with us and sustains us in ours. I, you know, I found this part of the passage, like, you know, just as he's saying, so tremendously encouraging for that reminder of um, our likeness with Paul in this matter. Yeah, Frank. Yeah, and again, it's, you know, this reminder, we, we, we can have this tendency to kind of elevate prophets and apostles to, oh, like they're a separate class of human being with access to, you know, some kind of powers that we don't have access to. But we have the same forms of encouragement. They needed the same forms of encouragement that we need. Um, yeah, Matthew. Yeah, yeah, and, and God's. Yeah, and again, the you know Matthew um, uh, hinted at this. There's a, a little bit debate on who's beating who. So he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes. So, you know, is the they of verse 17 the them who were driven from the, you know, tribunal? So it's a little unclear if if it's Jews. Um, 
yes. Uh, but it's, you know, I'm just, that's their, you know, in, interpretation is, trans, or translation is interpretation. And in that case, they're making the interpretation that it's the Greeks doing the beating where it's, it's fuzzy. Um, uh, yeah. It, it could either be the Greeks or Jews doing the beating. So, which again, is Sophocles a Christian yet or not, depends on kind of which interpretation you take. The emphasis here is just on, again, Galio's kind of like, y'all do what y'all want. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's not, it's not a great picture of, of, of Roman rule. Like he's, again, it's kind of like a pilot-like moment. I don't want to get my hands dirty with this thing. Y'all, y'all deal with it yourselves. And, you know, he's, a beating's in front of him and he's not doing anything about it. So he, he doesn't quite care. Uh, yeah, Jay. It is terribly violent. Um, and our, I think we forget how violent our world is and, and it was, you know, uh, up until the, you know, at least until the 18th century. I mean, when you look at the British penal code um, through the 18th century, how many things can be punishable by death or beating? <laughs> like the US Navy allowed flogging until the mid 19th century. Like, um, it's only in the last kind of two centuries where the West has kind of turned her away from corporal punishment to, um, to other forms of punishment. So that's a story for another day. Um, yes, it, it, it's, it's of recent origin. Um, so, uh, one final question and, um, is, uh, the kind of unified, so if we break, like the ESV has this, uh, the um, chapter broken into three sections. Paul in Corinth, Paul returns to Antioch, and Apollos speaks boldly in Ephesus. But the one consistent part running through all of those, each of those sections includes Priscilla and Aquila. So what, um, what do we learn about Priscilla and Aquila and their place in the ministry, because they are the unifying thread that runs through all three of these parts. Paul's not in the, the final part. You know, it's focusing on back, you know, Paul's gone off to Caesarea and then Antioch. Um, so this last section, he's not there, but Priscilla and Aquila are. Yeah, what, what do we learn about who they are and, and their ministry? Because again, I think this is, um, a place of great encouragement for us.
Yeah, and in the case of this couple, like, you know, the first thing we're told about them is that they're among the people who've been expelled from Rome. Um, and so, uh, you know, they've showed up in Corinth not entirely by their choice, um, and yet they're still opening their home to Paul. Like, that's the first thing we see. These two people who we're told are Jews who've been expelled from Rome, and they're showing up in Corinth and opening their household and opening their business to, to Paul. Like that he, you know, the hospitality, the openness to, yeah, you come make tents with us. Um, yeah, what, what a spirit that the couple has at that moment. And then they go with Paul. Like, so, you know, at the first time we see them, Paul's staying with them. And then we see them leaving with Paul, going to a totally another city. Paul continues to journey on, and they stay behind in Ephesus. Um, and we're told um, in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 19, uh, and Paul writes back to Corinth, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. So, you know, they're sending greetings back to the church in Corinth from another place, Ephesus, where the church is meeting in their house. Um, <laughs> You know, which which goes to, as you say, like, you know, using the, you know, the resources they have, not for selfish purposes, but, you know, for the good of the church, the opening of their home um, to to Paul and then to the church at large. Yes, Frank. Yeah, and the way, the manner in which they did it, like, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard them, they took him aside. They explained to him the way of God more accurately. Um, and the emphasis there um, seems to be that, not that Apollos was um, inaccurate, because it says he's preaching, uh, he, he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So it's not a problem in the, quality of his you know beliefs it's that you know he he needs a little more instruction so it's he um he he has a, a knowledge gap um that they're willing to step in and correct in a way that's good for apollos like they don't do it in like you know some public forum where it's gonna bring uh, oh, well, yeah, Apollos, he's eloquent, and he's really smart, but he doesn't know this. <laughs> like, you know, they do it in a gentle, instructing manner in a way that's good for him um, because, we, you know, uh, we see him being commended to go back to the region where Paul just left, to go back to uh, Achaia where, you know, Corinth and Athens are. So Apollos is, you know, going, going the opposite direction. Um, uh, of, of Paul's movements here. Um, and he can do so with the commendation of the church because of what you know, Priscilla and Aquila have done here, that they have given him this kind of further instruction that he lacks. So, um, and all that just to, 
to, uh, I, I think the chapter has these great points of encouragement for us. How God encourages um, you know, Paul directly through this vision, but also the encouraging presence of Christian believers with one another as represented in the, the bodies of Priscilla and Aquila, opening their home to Paul, opening their home to this new church that's starting in Ephesus, um, being willing to take aside uh, a, a, a new leader in the church and give him instruction in a way that's good for him and the church both. Um, you know, not trying to create division, but to, um, to help him exercise his gifts for the church even more. So, you know, um, for those of us who aren't, like, feel like we have the personality or the gift to be the kind of upfront person, like, this is a great model here of how um, everyone is a vital part of the church and can sustain that ministry, whether they're the ones doing the proclaiming or they're the ones doing the support and encouragement of the one doing the proclaiming. Like, um, but everyone needs that those forms of of encouragement and support and there's a role for all of us regardless of our giftedness uh, our place and stage in life um, there's a, a a way we contribute to the health and growth of the church um, and that's a good moment to stop we'll actually start with the end part of this chapter because there's a nice overlap to paul's third missionary journey which starts right back here in Ephesus. So when we return to this, um, again, in the future, God willing, uh, we'll have a chance to kind of revisit Apollos a little bit. Um, so let's pray.